identity line as a whole is again just that and it was to give wally a little bit of a a kick in the rear end reasons for hope and, and there are some I got distracted by something else. Might have been a pretzel. Who knows? Newsday presents the Island Ice Podcast with Andrew Gross. And welcome to Island Ice, Newsday's New York Islanders podcast, episode 123. And hi, I'm your host, Andrew Gross of Newsday. Uh, You can find me on Twitter at A Gross Newsday. In a little bit, it will be my pleasure to present an interview I did with Islanders team statistician, and I really, I think of him as a a historian, Eric Hornick, who is celebrating his 40th anniversary on Islanders broadcasts with MSG Networks. And then, of course, we'll get to your questions with Andrew's answers, but as for the Islanders, they are finally back at NHL 500 at 13, 13, and 6, and they had not been there since uh, falling to 5, 5, and 2. Uh, I believe that was on November 15th at Tampa Bay, so uh, about two months, a little more than two months uh, for the Islanders to fight back to NHL 500, and of course, uh, a lot of postponements along the way. That's part of the reason it, it, it took a while, but also uh, partly because they were not particularly playing well uh, through a depleted roster, both through COVID outbreaks and injuries, as we've gone over and over in, in previous episodes. But uh, back at NHL 500 at 13-13-6, and 13, six, after Tuesday night's 4-3, Nine-round shootout win at Philadelphia when Oliver Wallstrom uh, shooting in the ninth round for the Islanders, shooting last, uh, became the only player amongst the 18 shooters to get a goal in a a nine-round shootout win. So that gets the Islanders back to uh, NHL 500. And as Casey Sezika said, uh, quote, it's a starting point. But it, it is a significant one for the Islanders. Who, who still remain in last place in the Metropolitan Division, but will still have at least four games in hand on every other team in the division when they play again on Friday night. Entering Thursday, they were 14 points behind the Bruins for the final wildcard spot in the Eastern Conference, but they had played four fewer games than Boston, and the Bruins were set to host the Capitals on Thursday night. The Islanders have won five of six going into Friday night's game against the Coyotes, and they've earned points in seven of their last eight. They went five, one, and one on their last homestead, which stretched way back to December 19th, uh, stretched back to December 19th, as the Islanders had eight games postponed between December 20th and January 11th, and against all the teams holding playoff spots in both the Eastern and Western conferences. And uh, this is in a little bit of contrast to the sunny news of uh, winning five of six, earning points in seven of eight, that five, one and one homestand. The Islanders are still just two, 10 and two and have been outscored 46 to 21 uh, in their games against teams currently holding playoff spots in either conference. So that that is a concern that's that's certainly something the Islanders need to reverse. But 
Home and home wins on back-to-back nights against the Flyers was certainly nice as it ended a stretch of four games against Metropolitan Divisions with three wins in that span. And again, the lone loss in there was a 2 nothing loss to the Capitals on Saturday afternoon. Really, it was a one nothing game plus an empty netter. But the Islanders did not play particularly well in that game. They, they created very little in terms of offense. I believe it was just 13 shots while skating 5-on-5. Five five. They had three more after pulling Semyon Varlamov, who was, uh, who was very, very good in that game. Um, the execution was off. And again, that's, that's what you're concerned about uh, playing against uh, the, the playoff teams or the elite competition in the NHL. The Islanders really didn't generate much. Uh, but as for this coming seven-game homestand, and the Islanders are now uh, talking about NHL 500, the Islanders are now 6-6-3 six, six, and three at UBS Arena after christening their new $1.1 billion home with an 052 stretch in the building. And, and again, that was through COVID outbreaks and injuries. But uh, this seven-game homestand presents some more games that the Islanders really uh, should have a good chance of collecting points in, uh, at least on paper. Uh, the Flyers come back as uh, those two teams, the Islanders and Flyers, wrap up three games in nine days. So the Flyers, uh, who were on an 0-6-3 skid after uh, the Islanders' nine-round shootout win on Tuesday, they come back into the building. So do the struggling expansion Seattle Kraken uh, for Jordan Eberle's homecoming. Uh, the Coyotes, uh, again, not a playoff uh, contender, kick it off on Friday night. And the Senators uh, are in to end the homestand on February 1st. And uh, Senators, certainly not a playoff contender in the Eastern Conference. The Toronto Maple Leafs and the Minnesota Wild are the two teams holding playoff spots uh, who come in on this homestand. And uh, uh, the way, given the way the Islanders are playing at home uh, at UBS Arena, and given their their poor record against playoff teams, this certainly would be a good time for the Islanders to reverse their sad record against the elite competition. Um, reasons for hope, and, and there are some. The goaltending, uh, both Ilya Sorokin certainly and Semyon Varlamov, uh, both of them have had very, very strong games Uh you know, maybe a goal that uh, Varley would want back against uh, the Flyers, but uh, he stops all shot nine shots in the shootout, gives his team a chance to win, and, the, and they get the two points there. Um, this is what the coaching staff wants, where they can put either Varley or Ilya Sorokin in net and just be rest assured that they're going to get a good performance and 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 have a chance to win that night. So goaltending certainly tops the list of reasons for hope. And then I think you go right to Noah Dobson, who's who's really blossomed into, if not you know uh, certainly a top four defenseman, but you're, you're potentially looking at a top two defenseman now. Um, the way he's been responsible in the defensive end and what, what he brings 
in the offensive zone. Uh, he's looking for his shot. More times than not, he's leading the team in shots. Um, almost scored there against the Capitals. Might have been a different game. He hits the post. Um, and like I said, Noah at 22 is just blossoming uh, this season. Uh, really great to see. Great kid. Um, great attitude. Uh, has accepted everything that the Islanders have given him and in, in, in how they've handled his development since Trotz has been here, you know, uh, and he was an 18-year-old rookie, kept on an NHL roster rather than being sent back to his junior team. So uh, certainly a top four defenseman, and I would say, argue that he's coming close to uh, being a top two, and he's giving the Islanders that offensive-minded defenseman uh, and, and, and a pretty good skater that they've missed. Uh, he doesn't skate quite as well as, uh, you know, a Nick Letty he doesn't, you know, maybe Devontae's is a, a little bit more fluid, uh, offensively, but I, I know is still developing and he's sort of, uh, stepped into that void that losing Letty and Taze has left with the Islanders and also having Ryan Pulak, uh, still be on long-term injured reserve. So you got goaltending Noah Dobson, uh, the power play, as we've talked about, has been better. At one point, they went uh, through a 10-for-30 stretch, which is, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, is just outstanding in the NHL. Uh, Matt, Matthew Barzell, whose forte obviously is his skating, has just been magnetic to watch on the ice of late uh, w- with, his, with his skating. Even Josh Bailey, though he's still too often reluctant to shoot and uh, that was really a killer non-shot he opted uh, for against the Capitals instead feeding the crease instead of taking a uh, a shot at, at a pretty wide open look at the net again uh, game you know still very much in the balance there but he does have two goals in his last four games that gives him three on the season Casey Sezikis after going 43 games without a goal, now his goals in, in back-to-back games. And the identity line as a whole is, again, just that. Uh, uh, Zeker in between Matty Martin and Cal Clutterbuck, they've been strong on the forecheck. They've been really solid defensively. They've been playing very physical. Cal Clutterbuck is just playing with an edge, some real anger in his game, and and that's when he's at his best. And, and now those three are also contributing more offensively. And, and the Islanders, if there was you know a main reason uh, besides the COVID nineteen outbreaks and the uh, and the injuries, uh, why they struggled so much through the first. Uh, Really, you know, two, two and a half, three months of the season, it was because that identity line was was just not that. And lately, they've been back to that. Um, those are some reasons for hope. Meanwhile, the injury news just still isn't an encouraging. Uh, the team is almost back to its full complement. But uh, like I said, Ryan Pulak is still on long-term injured reserve with the lower body, a foot. He's going into his... 10th week of an absence on an injury that was initially supposed to sideline him for four to six weeks. And as of this recording, he was also still in COVID protocol. There was no timetable on when he might rejoin his teammates for practice. Kyle Palmieri also remains on uh, IR with a lower body injury. And while Trotz, uh, Barry Trotz said, 
Kyle Palmieri plateaued in his recovery efforts. He rejoined the team on January 3rd for practices, and you sort of felt like he wasn't in the lineup because there were other players playing better uh, than Kyle Palmieri, uh, you know, who has one goal and six assists in 25 games. But Barry Trott said the other day uh, that Kyle really was still only at 80-85%, um, and he had plateaued in his in his rehab. The, the the bigger question, of course, is whether there's a spot for Palmieri as soon as he's healthy, uh, given, you know, like I said, one goal, six assists in 25 games. Who's coming out for him? Uh, you know, I, I would certainly, you know, Oliver Wallstrom, to me, is, is a given in the lineup at this point. And as, as for Kiefer Bellows, uh, you know, even even though there's some still some young player hiccups, you know, maybe defensively, um, he got a chance to play with uh, Matthew Barzell. That didn't necessarily work, although I don't blame Kiefer at all for that. Um, and we'll get into that more on Andrew's answers. But uh, as Barry Trotz has said, you, you just need to be a certain type of wing to, to, to develop chemistry with Matthew Barzell because Matthew Barzell doesn't play like most centers given the way he uh it creates time and space and, and stops and starts with the skating. There's a lot of anticipation there, and, and it's hard to develop that chemistry. And uh, Kiefer Bellows really didn't have it in that one game he was allowed to play on, on Barzell's line. But at, at, at this point, I'm not taking Bellows out of the lineup. Um, other bit of news coming down this week is the NHL announced uh, its rescheduled games. And uh, as we expected, uh, you know, the, that, that three-week Olympic break in February is now flush with Islander games since the NHL is not sending its players to, be, uh, to Beijing. And uh, the Islanders coming out of the All-Star break, and that's uh, November 4th and 5th at Las Vegas. And uh, also congratulations to defenseman Adam Pellick uh, for his first All-Star selection. Very, very, very well-deserved. I, I was really happy uh, to see the NHL recognizing Adam Pellick for uh, just being the solid player that he is. And I hope Adam has a lot of fun in Las Vegas. Um, but coming out of that All-Star break, the Islanders will play 43 games in 80 days through April 29th. Uh, that, is, that is a lot, um, but, you know, uh, that's what happens when you uh, get so many games postponed. And just quickly, as I said, the NHL announced that schedule. Let's just go through... Uh, uh, the games, uh, December, uh, the, the dates I'll give you first are the dates that were postponed. The Islanders, uh, December 20th game against the Canadians at home is now February 20th. That's a 2 p.m. game. Uh, the December 23rd game against the Capitals at UBS Arena is now April 28th at 7.30 p.m. And then the league pushed the Islanders' regular season finale against the Lightning at UBS from April 28th to April 29th. Um, December 27th at Buffalo will now be played February 15th at Buffalo. Uh, that December 29th game against the Red Wings at UBS Arena is now on March 24th. Um, let's see, that forced the... Uh, 
the league to push up the Senators game at UBS Arena on March 24th, uh, up two days to March 22nd, and then the originally scheduled game on March 22nd against the Bruins at UBS will now be played on February 17th. Um, that, that road trip, uh, in early January that was postponed Seattle, Vancouver, Edmonton, and Calgary, uh, the Seattle game will now, uh, be in front of the Islanders California swing, which was supposed to start on, uh, February 24th. Uh, now the Islanders will head out to Seattle on February 22nd. Um, that's a trip that goes through March 1st at Colorado, five games Western swing. And then the, uh, Vancouver, Edmonton, Calgary, uh, swing will now be played, uh, coming out of the all-star break, uh, February 9th through the 12th. Um, the January 18th, uh, game that, uh, the Tuesday game against the Blue Jackets at UBS Arena that was postponed in order for the Islanders to, uh, make up a postponed game against the Flyers from November 30th. Uh, the, the, the nine round shootout game was originally supposed to be played November 30th. So, uh, Tuesday's game against the Blue Jackets at UBS Arena will now be March 10th. Um, and, uh, the March 10th game against the Penguins at UBS Arena will now be played April 12th. Um, that's my mom's birthday, so, uh, happy birthday to my mom in advance, but that will not be my only, uh, shout out to my mom in this episode. So, sorry, mom, you gotta keep listening here. Um, I think that's it, uh, for all the reschedulings. All of this is very encouraging because all of us who love hockey want to see games and there just weren't enough Islander games through the first three months of the season, obviously out of the Islanders control. That is about to change. And I really can't wait to get into the meat and the rhythm of this season finally and go through the March 21st trade deadline and see if this team can make a legitimate playoff push. And I also know Eric Hornick feels the same way about seeing more hockey. Um, and he tells us, amongst other topics, uh, about his lifelong love affair with the sport, as I chatted with Islanders team statistician uh, from MSG Networks, Eric Hornick. And as I mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, uh, bringing in uh, a, a guy that, Probably anyone who has watched an Islander broadcast or followed the team on Twitter or knows anything about the team is probably very well acquainted with my friend here, uh, Eric Hornick, a longtime Islander statistician. And uh, I I prefer actually calling you a a historian because I, I think historians are so crucial to any organization to uh, kind of bring the stories and, and sports are all about statistics and, and you certainly know all of them. And uh, uh, let me just first start off by saying, Eric, happy birthday. And I hope you're having a great one. Thank you very much. A pleasure to join you. Let me just start. You're, 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 you're celebrating 40 years with the Islanders, right? Doing uh, Islander broadcasts. And since you started probably when you were still in middle school, I would think that makes you still younger than me. Is that correct? Um, well, I, I started two days after my 18th birthday, so you can do the map. Um, <laughs> I was actually a senior in high school. Uh, Jiggs McDonald was the Islander broadcaster, and I got to meet Jiggs 
uh, when he came to New York uh, the previous season. And, you know, I'm always asked the question, well, how did I get started doing this? And the simple answer was I was persistent. Um, and I met him a few times. I started bringing him very tight, you know, very neat type notes of things. And then when the playoffs arrived in 1981, I, you know, being, you know, a 17 year old um, fan who had watched basically watched or listened to basically every playoff game the team had ever played. I prepared even more stuff and even more stuff. And he, you know, he took my name and number and he actually scheduled an interview for me that summer with the Islanders as the team statistician. That was a role that was in the PR department at the time. Uh, Jay Arbor who was Al's son had taken a different role. Um, he had actually gone to Denver to work with the Colorado Rockies and there was an opening and I went in on a summer day to the Coliseum and interviewed uh, with the PR team. And I thought it actually went really well. And I was like, okay, well, you know, I, you know, I'm in my senior, I'm going into my senior year of high school. You know, if this worked, I could always go to Hofstra. I could go to NYU. I could figure out, you know, something. And, when, uh, and on my way back home uh, to my house, uh, my mother gets a call and it's Bill Torrey. Wow. And Bill Torrey asked my mother, and thankfully my mother actually knew who she was because my mom was not <laughs> the hugest sports fan. Um, she was like, do you know where your son was today? <laughs> and she told them, yes, she was interviewing. She was, she was interviewing with, with you um, because he knows more about the Islanders than anyone. <laughs> um, I think that's how my mother and her, you know, her, you know, infinite wisdom described it. And he's like, well, we'd love to hire him, but he's still in high school. She's like, and my mother's like, yeah, but he's a really good student. He'd be able to figure it all out. So long story short, they went a different way. Um, and I kept in touch with Jiggs. And by the middle of that season, um, Jiggs's daughter, Kelly, was in my high school class. Um, and she came up to me in the hallway one day. It's like, here's my dad's number. He wants you to call him. And that's how it got started on January 21st, 1982. And ironically, it became not only my first day, but the first day of a streak that a lot of Islander fans of that era will certainly remember, the 15-game winning streak. Yeah, you, we, we were talking about that the other night over dinner. Um, I, I'm sure, you know, you, you can debate which is a more important moment. You know, what, what's more important to Islander history, you getting hired there or the team winning 15 in a row, but I, I, I've always wanted to ask you this because as a person who is just baffled by mathematics and numbers and just gets easily confused, wh where does your clarity with this stuff come from? I mean, is it just an, an innate ability or was it something you really, you know, worked on, you know, as a kid? Um, I, I think a lot of it is innate. Um, you know, I was um, a math major when I started college. Um, I was not a math major when I graduated college. But I, uh, you know, I've always enjoyed mathematics and arithmetic. And I also enjoy, I've always enjoyed statistics. I can remember reading a book um, in high school. And the title of it, there was something along the lines of there are three types of lies lies, damn lies, and statistics. And, you know, I, I followed a lot of statistical stuff um, with the team. And then obviously over the years, 
more information has become available and that just has opened up you know, wider ranges of things. And I do tend to have a very good memory for things that are important to me. So I remember my family and I remember basically every moment that's ever happened to this team. <laughs> well, we're, we're, we're going to test that uh, a little bit later on. I want to sort of do a lightning round with you, just throwing out things that I would never know and see how good you are with it. But uh, um, tell me first, first of all, I'm assuming when you got hired and the team wins 15 in a row, you took some credit for that, or at least you allowed others to think you had something to do with that, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, Butch Goring believes that I had absolutely zero to do with that. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I would tend, tend to agree, but it was just a wonderful, you know, coincidence, um, you know, to be, a, to be a part of those those early days. And then that, that, that whole, you know, cup year and that, you know, this is the spring of 82. So this is the, the two nothing lead over the penguins that gets away and then down three, one in the third and Arbor changes goalies and all, all those magical moments that leads to, um, you know, the, the Stanley, you know, the Stanley cup. Um, And it's funny, I can vividly, I've mentioned this with a, a friend of ours named Larry Brooks. Larry wrote the column in the post previewing the series and, his line was the only question here is can Brodeur sweep can Brodeur steal a game? Answer no, a sweep. And Larry had it right on. Um, and the Islanders won that, that Stanley Cup. But it was, you know, some some magical moments, you know, in addition just to amazing games, you know, I'm also 18 years old. So all that, you know, youthful excitement about it, you know, you know, was certainly a part of it. And then um for my my own being, my, my highlight maybe of that whole championship, um, I go to the the Coliseum. I meet. Um, I actually mentioned this. I think when we were talking on uh, early in the week, I meet Eric Compton, Brian's dad, who was covering the team for the Daily News at the airport when the team comes back. And a couple of days later, there's a parade in Nassau County. And if you're a an Islander fan that was a teenager in those days, you went to that parade. Um, I didn't go to the parade. I rode in the parade because Jean Puffin pulled me onto a float wow. and said, get on here. <laughs> and I wasn't saying no. So I rode in the parade all the way to, you know, down Hempstead Turnpike. It was a magical moment that I'll never forget. You, you, you've obviously, I mean, the Islanders history is so rich. And, uh, you know, you, you've obviously worked with some great people at MSG Networks over the years, Jigs. Obviously, Eddie Westfall and, you know, right through Howie Rose and uh, Joe Micheletti. I'm trying off the top of my head. And obviously now with Brendan and Butch um, and AJ and, you know, Shannon, all the all the people there. Um, did you, you know, since you got to know Jigs sort of first, did you ever gravitate when you were, you know, a teenager or or formative years, did you ever think about broadcasting or, or were you always really happy, you know, behind the scenes with, with, with what you're doing here? Well, in, um, in college, um, I spent a lot of time as the voice of a Dutchman in football and hockey on 89.7 FM, WRUC Schenectady, uh, which was the Union College radio station. Um, had an opportunity to call some amazing games. Both the football and hockey team were very good when I was in school. Mm-hmm. Um, I called national championship games in both sports, uh, Division Three. Union didn't win either of them, uh, but you know, I was looking at you know getting into broadcasting. 
um, you know, potentially as a career. My play-by-play partner was a year older than me. Um, his name was Scott Wyckoff, and Scott went on to be the voice of the Maine Mariners and has mm-hmm. forged a, a long career in radio um, in the Baltimore area now on WBAL. is one of the most popular radio figures um, in, in Baltimore. And I looked at different opportunities that came up. Um, I came close um, to a couple of spots um, in the AHL, most notably in Glens Falls. Um, the late, great Dave Strader called me right. uh, personally to say that I was their runner-up and to keep at it. Um, they selected a guy named John Kelly. Uh, John is Dan, Dan Kelly's son yep. and has gone on to a huge career himself as the voice of the St. Louis Blues, yeah. uh, most noticeably, uh, just like his father was. Um, and, and after that, I started looking, um, I spent some time with the NHL as an intern. And then at some point I was like, well, this may not work from a standpoint of, you know, hockey as a full-time career, but I was still doing, you know, 25, 30, maybe even more Islander telecast. And I got into my quote unquote real job as an actuary. And I've been, um, a credential property casualty actuary since, um, since the 1990s. And, you know, have done that as my day job. And then I used to say about 35 nights a year, I get to do exactly what I want. And in recent years, it's been up there 40, 45, even more, because now um, I'm not only doing Islander home games from the arena, but I'm also doing Islander road games very often from my kitchen table. (laughs) Yeah. So, (laughs) yeah, it's, it's great to have, you know, an outlet like that, you know, I mean, not that, you know, uh, I have a, well, I mean, you know, I, I enjoy playing drums and stuff, but, uh, you know, to, to, to have, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are days you're at the office and you, you're just giddy because, you know, you're going to a game that night. Absolutely. It's, um, you know, it's a great balance, um, you know, an opportunity to, work with, you know, I, and I lead a team of, of 40 odd claim professionals right now in my current role. Um, and they're all great to work with. And, um, you know, but when, you know, I get to the game, I don't have that leadership role. All I'm really trying to do is be a, a bit contributor to a really good broadcast. And, and you mentioned, you know, all the people um, on air that we've, that we've worked with and they've, you know, they've all been been great to me. I've, I've really enjoyed working with all of them. I think the one you you missed was Billy Jaffe. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm but, sorry about that. Yeah, but um, yeah, I, I really have enjoyed. You know, I hear from Jigs every day. My the first birth, not every day, but you know, on a regular basis. Um, the, one of the first birthday notices I got this morning was from Jigs. Okay, um, yeah, and and he was up. Uh, he was up at UBS recently, and uh, I mean, I obviously don't have the same relationship with Jigs that that you do, but I mean, me and him must've talked for a half hour. I mean, he's just, he's just a fantastic person, just a kind gentleman. Yeah. So let's just say the MSG ratings on the West coast of Florida are pretty good. Um, <laughs> Cause I think Jigs watches just, just about every game. And he, you know, he, you know, he came to New York in a, you know, a wonderful time. And, a, you know, it, you know, his, his 50th game as the Islander broadcast was Mike Bossy's 50th and 50. Wow. So it was, you know, you know, all of those great moments have his voice to it. And, you know, that's why, um, you know, there's a soundtrack there that Islander fans, uh, particularly of a certain age, you know, really love. And then, you know, when Howie came in to replace Jigs, um, I had known Howie from his days back at Sports Phone. 
Right. Um, and, you know, Howie and I are have very similar backgrounds in that um, he's about 10 years older than I am. Our kids actually ended up going to the same schools in Syosset. Um, but he was basically the age I was when the Mets were born. And we know how he's encyclopedic knowledge about the Mets yep. and his hockey knowledge is, you know, is right up there as well. And, um, you know, I had many more years with, with Howie, um, than I did with Jiggs. Howie did more years of the Islanders than, than, than Jiggs did. Um, and I was so happy that Howie was finally able to, you know, call the, you know, the Islander winning game, um, yep. that series with Florida that turned out to be Howie's last call. His last call as the Islander announcer was John Tavares's goal in double overtime to end that 23-year stretch without a, a playoff series, and it was uh, it was a nice way for him to to write off in the sunset. And then um, came this young guy who was the voice of the Utica Comets named Brendan Burke, and Brendan has just been tremendous to work with over um, over these five six years we've been together, and, and hopefully. You know, hopefully we'll be doing it for my, we were doing it for my 35th. We're doing it for my 40th. I certainly hope we're doing it for my 50th as well. Yeah. I mean, Brendan has rapidly put himself into contention to being sort of like Doc Emmerich's successor as, as the best, you know, play-by-play TV voice in, in, the, in the country, I would think. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, let me ask you, uh, because if, if someone is listening to this podcast and hasn't read Eric Hornick's The Skinny, you know, the day after a, uh, 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 an Islander game. I, I, I don't know what you're doing. It, it's pretty much required reading. It's just fascinating. And what, what gave you the idea to start that? How much time does that take you after a game? And, you know, I know how I struggle sometimes, you know, to write a story. Does that come easily for you or, or is there, you know, or, or how tough an assignment do you give yourself on a nightly basis after games? Well, um, the skinny actually came about as a television fe- feature to begin with. Uh, back in the 19, I think it was the 92, 93 season. It was definitely part of that season. Um, Jig said to me, hey, we're coming up with this thing we want to do in our postgame show called the skinny. And like you always have all these great notes and some of them we just don't get to. Yeah, And this would be an opportunity um, to get them on the air. Um, there was even a, a sponsor for the skinny, if I recall. And, you know, we were able to get them in. And then, you know, years, years went by. We did that for a couple, couple of years while, while Jigs was here. And years went by. And I started, you know, as the Internet was developing more, um, you know, I started writing, writing notes, you know, after games. Um, and I approached the team about, you know, would they be interested in having um, the skinny appear on the team website, which it started, it did one season, the season before the lockout. And then it returned about five years later. And it's been a consistent feature. Um, it's on my own blog, which is nyiskinny.com. And it also appears on the team's website after every game um, as well. And it's, it's a labor of love. Um, it's something I'm, I'm very proud of. Um, and, you know, it has appeared after the last 790 or so Islander games in concession, in succession. Um, it depends on the type of game. Some games take longer uh, than others. If the Islanders had won in overtime last night on Tuesday, the skinny yeah. wouldn't have taken all that long. 
But because they went to a nine-round shootout that nobody scored until the ninth round, there became some shootout minutiae that yeah. I thought was worth looking up and including. Um, you know, that made it a, a little bit longer of a, of a process. Um, one thing I don't have that you do is I don't have a deadline. I finish it. I will finish it before I go to sleep. Yeah. But I don't have a deadline to hit. So I, I can, you know, kind of write it in different styles. Sometimes I'll write the back first. Sometimes I'll write the front first. But overall, you know, there's usually, you know, a whole bunch of nuggets in there. Um, and one of the things I can tell you is that many more people read the skinny when the Islanders win. <laughs> yeah well i'm sure i mean i'm sure that's the same for for my stories as well you you don't want to regurgitate bad news i guess but uh yeah. um i mean you in a sense you do have a deadline because like you say you have a day job i mean you can't you know work until 6 a.m and then you know pour over numbers all day no so, yeah, the, the latest one i remember um was there was a, a number of years ago and when the Islanders were in Vancouver, um, and I think it was 2014. The Islanders were in Vancouver, and they were down 3 nothing going to the third, and they just looked awful. And I started writing the skinny. Uh, it might have been 4 nothing going to the third. And I started writing the skinny, and lo and, lo and behold, in the third period, the Islanders start scoring and scoring and scoring and scoring. It became one of the biggest scoring periods in their history. And – by the time that skinny got done, I think it was well after two in the morning. It could have been two thirty in the morning, you know, because it was a West Coast game. <laughs> but it was, you know, and you know, one of the issues um, sometimes I have after games like that, after any of these tr- dramatic playoff wins, it j- takes me a while for me to settle down after the game, anyhow, because you know this is the team I've followed, you know, almost since the very beginning. I was eight years old when the Islanders were born, and I've been watching them um, ever since. Um, Last night, which was the night that uh, you know, Willie O'Ree was honored in, in Boston for his anniversary, it was also the 49th anniversary of one of the more memorable Islander games, which was a 9-7 win their first season in Boston. Um, and I, I remember watching that game, um, you know, as an almost nine-year-old. And that was one of the early games that, that kind of got me hooked into this into this crazy world. And for the most of the rest of it, I blame Chico Resch. And I've told him that numerous times um, <laughs> because what he did in 1975 um, for an impressionable 11 year old um, was, was something that, you know, has always kind of stuck with me and it's always good to see him around the arena. Oh yeah. No, Chico, Chico is amazing. Um, we, we could do, I mean, I have done episodes with Chico. You, you just wind him up and he talks and he's great. Um, real quick, cause I, I do want to get to a couple of other things, uh, and have some fun, uh, with some stats, but is this, you know, you talk about, you have a mind for the stats when you do the skinny, do you have spreadsheets on this? Do you just write stuff in notebook or is a lot of this just filed away in your brain? Well, there, there are definitely some spreadsheets that that help with with some of the historical um, spots. You know, if you read the skinny game after game, you'll note that the basis of, basics of it look the same. Yeah. And basically, yeah. you know, I start with the last game's skinny. I turn everything yellow, and then I rewrite it uh-huh. um, as, as need be. So that's kind of how it, you know, kind of how it goes. Um, you know, but there's you know, I'm I'm oftentimes looking for things that are might be slightly obscure, things that might be, you know, interesting. 
Um, there will be a lot of positive notes when the team is playing well. But if the Islanders, you know, go two, five and two in a nine game stretch, you'll see that too. Um, and, you know, that's one of the things I've always been appreciative is that the Islanders will publish that on their website. You know, that that's what their record was in those nine games, be it six, one and two or two, five and two. If you can think off the top of your head, you, you mentioned quirky stats. Is there one that comes to mind where, you know, you were like, wow, that is quirky or I, I would not have thought of that. Yeah, well, one of the things that, that brought attention to me um, a, a few years ago, um, it was an early season game with the St. Louis Blues. Um, I think it might have been a Columbus Day matinee game with St. Louis. And there was, there was something going on in that game with the Islanders down. Uh, they were down 2 nothing late in the game, and they had never come back from, from a deficit of that to win, a 2 nothing deficit that late in the game. To win, and it just seemed like it was kind of crazy. It was right before the it was the the second game of the seventeen game point streak. In fact, um, and you know, Brendan um, had taken pictures that I of the whiteboards I had held up, and I think that was kind of the start of the whiteboards gaining, you know, some familiarity. Um, and I had a whiteboard from before, and then a whiteboard after, and he ended up showing both of them on his Twitter feed. Um, and that drew um, a lot of attention. Um, so that, that was one of those crazy things that I was able to look up just because I now have more data available than, than I used to have. Um, and I, I remember that one specifically because it, of the attention it drew, particularly to my handwriting, which is atrocious. Um, <laughs> and, and, to, you know, and to the whiteboards and MSG over the years, their social media folks have use that whiteboard in a lot of different Islander related um, things where they'll basically use my picture of me holding the whiteboard and they'll, you know, they'll print something on the board, you know, join us tonight on MSG plus or, you know, season opener tonight or, or any of those type of things. And every time I see it, it makes me laugh. And I'm always appreciative of, um, you know, that they end up using that. You, uh, will you indulge me if we try and play a stump the statistician here for a few minutes? Sure. Let's give it a shot. Great. And uh, I'm sorry we don't have any theme music for this, but uh, off the top of my head, I'm just going to try and think of things I know I don't know. Like, who in Islander history has scored the most goals in the final minute of regulation? That's a good question. Um and I also don't know the answer to it, but I can probably find it out for you really quickly. Um, you know, one, one of the things that I've prided myself over the years, yeah. um, I felt that I could have been a really good reference librarian because I know where to look. It's something that I, I don't know off the top of my head, so I don't want to give you a guess because it would just be yeah. a guess. But it's something that, you know, and you have to think about, you know, the last minute of a game, you'd have empty nets, you'd have, um, you know, a lot of goals, you know, such as that. Um, you know, but you can, you can certainly get, you know, get an idea of, you know, different players that have done something like that, um, in the last minute of a third period. If you give me one second. Yeah. Well, I, I, I would say my, my mom, uh, bless her heart would absolutely adore you because she worked for 40 years as a reference librarian for the New York public library. And, uh, you know, she, she definitely respects being uh, knowing where to find facts so 
Right. Well, you know, it, it's probably just by the fact that they scored so many. It's probably either Trache or Basi. Okay. Um, yeah, they would certainly have the best start at it. And yeah. Brian Trache scored about 50 of them. Um, you know, so it, it's one of those, you know, I would say it's one of those two. You know, Basi scored 573. Trache yeah. scored 500. But wow. uh, you might find, you might have found, um, you might have found Trache out on the ice a little bit more later in games, mm-hmm. particularly early in Mike's career. Um, you know, so it's one of those two, I would think. All right. Who, who, uh, who has the best shooting percentage in Islanders history? Uh, you know, sometimes you get weird questions like this because you get weird things happening. Yeah. Uh, and you'll get, you know, guy, you know, so part of it becomes, okay, well, you know, what's, you know, what, first of all becomes, well, what's the minimum um, you know, what's the minimum you're looking for? The, you know, the, the record for a season um, is a very strange record because it's not held by Mike Bossy or Brian Trache or John Tavares or Ziggy Palfi or any of those other guys. It's held by Greg Gilbert, huh. um, who I, 26.3 was the number within kind of in my back of my mind. I knew it was his record. I just wanted to check the number. Um, in the 83-84 season, um, Gilbert scored uh, tw- 31 goals that year with a, sh- a shooting percentage of 26 point three percent. You know, so that's obvious. That was the that was the highest for you know a single season among players with any kind of significant you know significant goal scoring. Okay, I mean that's I mean I wouldn't have come up with that. So that that that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, for career, you know, it's an easy you know the expected answer. Uh, yeah. It's Mike Bossy, and that's a good answer. Bossy's at 21.2, um, as was Ray Ferraro as an Islander. Um, my apologies to Hector Marini, um, who scored eight goals as an Islander on 24 shots, and to Michelle Bergeron and Val Philpa, um, who all had slightly higher percentages, but obviously many fewer goals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hector Marini, there's a name. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I know you've gotten, obviously, to know uh, the, the broadcasters and staff you've worked for, but did you, you know, have you made any kind of close relationships with any of the players of any of them, you know, any of them stood out, you know, obviously, you know, it's gotta be a, you know, a childhood dream. You, you, you grow up rooting and, and just, you know, fanatically, you know, loving this team. And, and now you've been a part of their, uh, history for 40 years any of the players really stick out to you um as truly special in your life if i don't say butch he'll you know he'll get mad at me butch is um, a given right (laughs) yeah i've you know obviously butch and i spent about 11 seasons together and um you know butch has done more games as an islander announcer than he did as a player or as a coach combined uh you know so and and it's been wonderful to hear him tell stories about those teams that meant so much to so many people, um, you know, from the inside, you know, and, um, you know, so Butch, you know, Butch, I mentioned Chico earlier, um, haven't gotten the chance to spend a lot of time uh, with him or the ones that haven't spent a significant time in the broadcast uh, booth, Bobby Nystrom immediately comes to mind. Um, of course, I grew up in Long Island in the seventies and eighties. So yes, I knew Bobby Nystrom. 
basically everyone knew, knows Bobby Nystrom, but he was always really nice, um, you know, really nice to me. Um, and, you know, I, you know, I've had a chance to meet all of them at some point. Um, but those are the ones that, that immediately stick out as being just particularly special to me. I've had some nice times with Pat LaFontaine as well. Um, his foundation does wonderful things. Um, you know, so, yeah, I think yeah, anyone who has covered sports will, will generally tell you the hockey players as a group are the nicest group. And I don't really have any argument to counter that. No, no, neither do I. Uh, I mean, things are obviously a little bit different now with, with the COVID pandemic, you don't get to have the relationship with the players, you know, or, or the, you know, interpersonal contact and interviewing and, you know, just getting to be around them like you did before the pandemic hit. And uh, hopefully one day we get to go back to that. But, uh, you know, for uh, amongst the, the non Stanley cup years, um, is there anything that really sticks out? Any of the particular errors that, that really stick out to you? And why would that be? Sure. Um, you know, I think there's kind of like, you know, basically one a decade. Um, you know, that 92-93 team, that was the Dale Hunter-Pierre Turgeon year. Yep. Yeah. Um, you know, that team was real close to winning the whole thing. Um, and they played, you know, you know, really well together. Um, and I remember thinking um, at the trade deadline that year, Don Maloney had pretty much taken over as general manager um, and didn't do anything at the deadline. And he felt like he had the right pieces in place. And he certainly did. And, you know, obviously they upset the Penguins and David Volokh scores that goal. Um, truth be told, I was watching that game at, at home. Um, I jumped when David Volk scored our wedding photo fell off the wall um, <laughs> and cracked. Um, and I wonder if that may have produced 23 years of bad luck, <laughs> but that was a, yeah, that was a special year. How he always talks about the Oh one Oh two year. You know, the Peter Laviolette first year on Long Island. Yeah. Um, you know, they get off that, that great start. Um, and then, um, you know, they're basically rewriting the Islander record book each game in, in the month of October. Um, and then they go into uh, the playoff series with Toronto. And that was a fierce, ugly battle. It was hockey. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, it, it, it was it was it was tremendous. Um, you know, and obviously they they fall short in game in game seven of that year. And then, you know, if, if you move forward into the 2000s, um, you know, the first year they got back to the the playoffs, which would have been 2013. Um, well, now, you know, the, the former 18-year-old statistician has children that are 13 and 17, and they are going to understand what the Coliseum felt like when it rocked. Yeah. And it rocked. Yeah. And, you know, and that was really special. And then because I wasn't working the national telecasts um, during the, um, the Tampa Bay series last year, I got to watch them close the Coliseum with my son, um, you know, and, and see those, you know, that Anthony Beauvillier goal in, in overtime in game six. Um, and that, that's something that will, you know, will always stick, you know, stick out as a memory, um, even though game seven did not go uh, the Islanders way. Well, we can talk about game seven forever, but that was <laughs> as close as it comes. And, and you, you're absolutely right that the Coliseum couldn't have gotten a more fitting send off than uh 
that game six. I mean, that's a game that I think anyone who was there will will never forget that right. moment. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I, I did work the last game six of the first era. They when they beat you know Barry Trotz's team to force it back to game seven in Washington. I worked that telecast um, with Chris Cutford, and I remember joking with Chris because Chris would also call the national call the Tavares call. He called the national goal the Volat call, and in Canada. And it's like whenever he seems to be around, good things usually happen to the New York Islanders. Uh, but and that was that was also one of those moments where my ears were were shaking, um, you know, at, at the end at the end of that game. And you know, that was also part of that charitable thing that we had done um, with the. It's happened at the Coliseum, um, where we you know combined would make a wish and raise some thirty thousand dollars just to create four wishes for kids in in the metro area. Um, that that you know, in terms of everything I've done over the years, that's one of the things I'm really most most proud of. And I always get a smile, even in, even at uh, UBS, I've seen a few people wearing those sweatshirts around the building and it, it just makes me really smile. Well, Eric, I, I appreciate you spending a few minutes with us. Um, you know, again, happy birthday. Uh, and, you know, as I've tried to give you credit, you know, either on Twitter or, you know, in my writing, uh, you know, the, the stuff you have is invaluable to us as, as sports writers and other media members. Uh, really, you know, we could not sound as smart without your knowledge. So, uh, you know, basically uh, all appreciation to you for everything you do. Oh, well, thank you very much for having me on your uh, your podcast. I've been a regular listener, uh, so I'm, I'm glad to uh, to be a part of, of this episode. Well, absolutely. And I will... Uh, I'll see you back at UBS on uh, Friday for another seven-game homestand, right? Yeah, Friday will actually be the 40th anniversary to the day. I'm looking forward to it. So thanks again to Eric Harnick for taking the time to chat. And now I will try to provide some insight to your questions with some Andrew's answers. GLH205 says, why does Barry Trotz refuse to play Wallstrom with Barzell? Arthur Adams says, Andrew, let's hear your take on this. Why won't Barry play Wallstrom with Barzell on the top line? Don't hold back. Coach Jeff24 says, Andrew, do you think Wallstrom and Bellows are frustrated by Barry Trotz's unwillingness to trust young talent? Uh, for example, never putting Wallstrom on the first line, putting uh, Bellows there once and ruling out chemistry. Uh, Oliver Wallstrom, the ninth man up in the shootout. It's infuriating as a fan and getting hard to defend. Um, so let me just uh, say a little bit about that. Uh, and, and I've mentioned this before. I mentioned this earlier in the podcast. Uh, this is not a vendetta, uh, that Barry Trotz has against young players. Um, you know, I know, <laughs> I certainly understand watching the, uh, Twitter feed, what the fans are thinking on that subject, but, uh, Barry Trotz has developed young players before, and you know uh, to to bring up a name uh, that that you guys hate. Um, you know Barry Trotz helped develop 
Tom Wilson into something more, much, much more than anyone would have thought uh, when Tom Wilson came into the league. We just, you know, and again, it's a tough subject because if you're not Tom Wilson's, you know, if you're not rooting for the team Tom Wilson is on, everyone pretty much has the same thoughts about Tom Wilson, uh, that the facts remain that this is now a guy that you rely on as a, you know, on the top line has played with Alex Ovechkin. Um, and while he still is physical, while he's still out of control at times, Barry Trotz certainly helped develop a young Tom Wilson into a top line wing. Um, it took time. Uh, and, and the one quality Barry really has is, is patience. And uh, to answer the question whether Wallstrom and Bellows are frustrated with Barry, I, I don't sense that at all. I, I get the sense, like like Noah Dobson was, that they are very understanding of what the Islanders' process is. And, and the reason for that is because Barry Trotz is a tremendous communicator with his players and and so is the rest of his staff, you know, Jim Hiller, John Gruden, certainly Lane Lambert. Uh, they all communicate. It's an open door policy with these guys. And, uh, you know, and Lou Lamarillo is the same way. There's never really any gray areas. It's it's all black and white. Everything is explained. You can go back. You know, you can talk to a lot of Barry's old players. I mean, you go watch the way Shea Weber was developed in Nashville. Right. Um, you can go back and talk to any of these players and, and Barry explains everything to them. Um, and, and you can even go back to the devils in 1987, go talk to Ken Danico, uh, about Lou Lamarillo's, uh, communication skills and expectations for players. Uh, players are not guessing. Uh, there, there's really no frustration. And, and Barry also explained why Oliver Wallstrom was the ninth man up in the shootout. I, I tweeted out that answer, uh, the, you know, when I asked uh, Barry about that. And uh, it, it's also posted on the Islanders' uh, Twitter account. But in, in short, uh, Wallstrom was 0 for 3 on the shootout. Now, to be fair, the Islanders had not scored a shootout goal all season. Uh, before Oliver Wallstrom got one in the ninth round. Um, but, you know, Barry just thought that, that in his words, uh, Wally had, quote-unquote, fumbled uh, the opportunity, the, the first three opportunities. So it, it was a little bit of a coaching strategy um, to, you know, to show Wally. And look, Barry didn't think that was going to get to a ninth round. So his plan was not to use Oliver Wallstrom. Um, and it was to give Wally a little bit of a, a kick in the rear end to, to say that you got to work your way into the uh, shootout rotation after getting those first three chances. And yes, Barry Trotz gives, and he said this, he's admitted this, he gives veterans a little bit more leeway than he does young players. But that's not because he has a vendetta against him. It's a teaching tool on, on Barry Trotz's part. Um, I'm sorry if I'm sounding like a, a Barry Trotz, you know, apologist here, but I, you know, I, I do see what he's doing. And, and I think you just have to look at how uh, the organization treated uh, Noah Dobson and you trust the process. Um, look, Oliver Wallstrom uh, was motivated. He he was clearly the best 
<laughs> the best of the 18 shooters in that shootout. And now the next time the, the Islanders get to a shootout, I would expect uh, Wally to be in the top three, uh, you know. So a um, little bit of a coaching tool there. Uh, let's see. And as far as not playing Wallstrom with Barzell, as I, I mentioned up above, it comes down to chemistry, and Wally has just not shown Barry Trotz yet that that is going to be a, a consistent thing if, if, if there. And, you know, it doesn't have to happen in games. You know, there's a lot we don't see in practices, um, especially during a pandemic now. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of film taken during practices. So it's not like Barry Trotz is making this decision in a vacuum. He is making in his educated opinion. And Barry Trotz has seen a lot, a lot of hockey as a coach going back to his AHL days in the early 1990s. He has seen a lot of hockey. He's been through this many, many times in his opinion uh, it, it just isn't there yet. So, like I said, I mean, uh, uh, trust you trust the process because you look at Noah Dobson and you see where the process has gotten him. Uh, let's see. Um, let's see. Robert Goldman, and this is off the Oliver Wallstrom uh, topic, when Ryan Pulak is available to uh, play, do they automatically send Sallow down or keep him up to fill in for a couple of the aging and less mobile blue liners. He appears to be a better option than Sebastian Ajo, in my opinion. And uh, you know what? I, I, I agree, uh, Robert. I, I would, at this point, I, I think Sallow gives you a little bit more versatility, a little bit more to his game than Sebastian Ajo. Uh, but the question is, do they risk losing Sebastian Ajo through waivers to, to send him back down when, when Pulak is available? I, I'm not 100% sure. I mean, all things being equal, I would keep Sallow up. But you also, you also don't want Robin Sallow uh, sitting on the bench uh, if, you know, Barry and the, and the coaching staff has shown that they're going to go with their top six, and that includes Andy Green and Dano Chara, barring injuries. So I would think Sebastian Ajo is more suited for a seventh man role uh, at, the, at the point in, in, in Ajo and Salo's career. Um, let's see, we got a bunch on trades. Uh, Melissa says, uh, do you think any trade deadline moves come this year? Uh, if so, which ones? Bill D says, now that Dobson is carrying the puck more, do you think a scoring winger to go with Barzell is the top priority for a trade or another defenseman? Michael asks, uh, with Dobson playing very well, should the Islanders move an acquisition like Jacob uh, Chikron uh, to the back burner and move getting a goal scorer to the front burner if Lou still thinks they have a chance to move now would help more than one at a deadline, and I believe Lou is going for it. Yes, Lou goes for it, and I agree uh, there. Um, Jack Anton says the only untouchable Islanders at the trade deadline are Barzell, Nelson, Wallstrom, Pellick, Pula, Dobson, Sorokin, agree or disagree. I agree that I don't see the Islanders moving any of those, but I, I might put Robin Sallow there. Um, perhaps, or maybe they're, uh, they're showcasing him because you, you also have Samuel Bolduck, uh, 
uh, coming along. So, uh, you know, I, I would say maybe Sallow, but I'm not 100% on that. And uh, uh, Johnny Pajamas, uh, Johnny says, aside from Varley, who else is traded at the deadline if the Islanders are way out of the race? And uh, I, I'll say this quickly. I, I don't think the Islanders are going to be way out of the race. I think they're going to be close enough that, that Lou will be looking to add, not subtract. Um, the only thing maybe, and, and after what I said about the identity line up earlier, I, I don't see this happening, but you know, Cal Clutterbuck, maybe just because he's in the last year of a deal and I don't necessarily see him being re-signed this off season. Although look, they brought back Casey Sezikis for six years and Matt Martin still has a couple of more. So who knows with that? Let me uh, where where to start here? Um, yes, I do think Lou will be making some moves, and it's an interesting uh, debate whether a scoring winger or a defenseman will be the priority. I had swung towards a, a defenseman, and you know, I I also think that perhaps. Uh, Lou tries to get one and one. I, I do still think that the Islanders could fortify themselves with the defensemen. Um, of course, getting Ryan Pulak back into the lineup is sort of like making a trade without making a trade. But uh, I, I don't know about Jacob Chikorin. I, I just think that price is going to be, you know, really exorbitant. Um, I, I don't know if, if Lou is willing, you know, uh, you know, that would probably, the ask would probably be an Oliver Wallstrom, a first rounder, uh, and, and another top prospect, or, you know, uh, maybe an Anthony Beauvillier, something like that. Uh, the cost would be high. Um, I, I don't know if the Islanders go down that path, but, uh, you know, maybe they look at uh, Ben uh, Charot of uh, the Canadians. I'm sorry if I just butchered that name. I, I actually looked up uh, Chikrin's uh, uh, pronunciation. I forgot to look up uh, uh, Ben's uh, pronunciation. But he's in, uh, you know, he's a, a big, physical, rangy, uh, you know, left-handed defenseman. And uh, is that an upgrade over his Dano Chara? Um Probably uh, for the short term, uh, and uh, he he's in the last year of a deal. You know, cap hit three point five million. Probably be easier for the Islanders to fit that in. Let's see. Um, all things Islanders. A couple of well, uh, all things Islanders uh, asks how well do you think Noah Dobson has settled into a role of being our number one defenseman? You, you've heard me talk about him uh, a lot in this episode, and yeah, I, I think you're looking at a twenty two year old who is well on his way to being uh, the team's top defenseman, uh, and if not already. And, and further to that. Point, Point. I was thinking about this watching the game at Philadelphia on Tuesday. Um, I, I think we could all agree that right now, uh, if we had to select a team MVP for the Islanders, it would be Ilya Sorokin. But I, watching that game in Philly, um, and, and I was going to tweet it out, but I, I got distracted by something else. Might have been a pretzel. Who knows? Um 
I think by the end of the season, Noah Dobson is going to be in the discussion uh, for Islanders team MVP. Uh, it, uh, certainly if he keeps playing this way, it's going to be hard to beat out Ilya Sorokin. Um, but I, I think, you know, Noah at least deserves to be in that conversation. Um, let's see. Um, Thomas Boyle. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is a good one, Thomas. Um I've heard that Connor McDavid is getting frustrated with the direction the island uh, the the Oilers are going in and will ask for a trade after the season. Since this is an Islanders podcast, not saying this is going to happen, but what will the Islanders have to give up to acquire him? Um look, here's the thing. If if Connor McDavid is on the market, I think every team has to be interested. Uh, you, you have to make that call. And, you you know, if you're the Islanders, I, I think you start with probably two first-round picks. It might take three. I, I think you got to throw a, a, a really, you know, top prospect in there, be it Robin Sallow, Samuel Bolduck, um, uh, Aturati. Um, you 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 probably have to throw someone like Matthew Barzell in there as well. Uh, someone of that ilk. Um, the, the, the Oilers are going to want a, a center back, you know, uh, Brock Nelson or uh, a Matthew Barzell. So, but, you know, would I do that deal? This is all hypothetical. I would, you know, even at that price to get Connor McDavid here, yeah, I, I think you certainly have to think about it. And I, I think everyone in Edmonton is, is getting frustrated. Um, Brooke Simpson asks, will Lane Lambert be leaving after his taste of being a head coach this year? And look, Barry Trotz has, has pushed for Lane Lambert to get a head coaching job for a long, long time. And I, I think Lane's stint, uh, you know, the three games he coached with Barry, uh, was it three? Uh, two, yeah, uh, three games he coached with, with, with Barry uh, absent uh, will only remind others around the league that uh, he should be a candidate. Um, whether he'll finally get his chance or not, I'm not 100% sure, but I, I, I think this could only have helped uh, Lane Lambert in in his quest and certainly, you know, uh, Barry Trotz's quest and, and the Islander players have also said they, they can't understand why Lane Lambert hasn't been given his own team yet. Um, let's see. Big bad mama says, what is Barry Trotz's win percentage on challenges? And I, I could not find that lifetime, but, I, I, I'll tell you exactly where I went to go uh, for this season. That was right to Eric Hornick's uh, um, uh, great blog, The Skinny. Um, and sure enough, very easy to find. Barry Trotz, the Islanders on challenges this season. He's one up, one down. Uh, the Islanders, and I'm quoting directly from Eric Hornick here, uh, the Islanders are 1-0-0 in games they are successful. That would be uh, Tuesday at Philadelphia on an offside. And uh, they are 0-1-0 in games that they are unsuccessful. And that would be the season opener uh, at Carolina, 6-3 loss when uh, Barry uh, challenged for goalie interference. Uh, 
Um, and one more. Um, Matthew Nadoff says, do you think the Islanders have a chance to make the playoffs? And if so, what do we have to do to make it? Um, yes, I, I still think the Islanders have a chance to make the playoffs. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, what they have to do is start playing much, much better and start winning games against the NHL's elite competition. And uh, they they probably have to play, at, you know, a 680, 700, 710 clip uh, the rest of the way uh, to make the playoffs. Not going to be easy, but I still think they have a chance. And then before ending this podcast, and thank you all for coming along for the ride, um, I just wanted to uh, let you know that... Um, Eric Kornick, as soon as we finished recording uh, the, the, the segment for the podcast, he, uh, he DM'd me uh, regarding uh, who had the most uh, goals, uh, you know, late in the, in the last minute. As we discussed, um, Eric Kornick, very thorough, says, Brian Trottier scored 35-25 into an empty net. That's by far the most ever by an Islander. Mike Bossy scored 24 in the last minute, and that was 12 into an empty net. And John Tavares scored 14 in the last minute, but 13 were into an empty net. Um, so again, thank you to Eric uh, for being so diligent and for everything Eric does. Um, thank you to everyone who submitted questions. And like I said, happy birthday uh, to Eric Hornick. Uh, so, so happy you joined me today. Again, you can find him on Twitter at eHornick and you can find his invaluable blog, The Skinny at nyiskinny.com. You can find me on Twitter at A Gross Newsday. And for all of our Islanders content, please go to newsday.com backslash aisles. And until the next episode, stay safe, everybody, and happy hockey.